Welcome to the AFTA podcast. My name is Donna Carter and I'm your host. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Kata Wengarten, who is the leading voice on a range of issues, including compassionate witnessing, radical listening, responding to political violence, hope as action, intimacy, illness, feminism, parenting, and mothering. She is the founder and director of The Witnessing Project, a nonprofit organization that consults to individuals, families, and communities locally, nationally, and internationally to transform toxic witnessing of violence and violation to active, compassionate witnessing with others. As we continue to experience the effects of the COVID-19 in our lives and communities, we honor the stories that shaped our desire to help others in reverence and respect to liminal spaces in our lives. We called ourselves back from old times and old places to examine how possibilities of creative action in life have the power to invite hope in times of uncertainty. Enjoy our podcast. woke up today sometimes I don't know if that happens to you but that happened to me today I wake up having some insights about um, life and it's totally um, unexpected I woke up thinking today about liminal spaces and uh, it got me thinking that most of us do not have much training in waiting right Uh, if you think about what's happening nowadays um, with the COVID crisis and us having to uh, reinvent, reimagine the things that we do day by day, um, it gets us thinking about what's possible, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm here with you who developed so many things in spaces where uh, perhaps people saw no possibilities. I wonder uh, if you can tell us a little bit about some of the projects, maybe the Witness to Witness. Um, tell us a little bit about your work. Well, that's kind of a, a, a tall order, and it's a phenomenally interesting introduction to it, to think about COVID, uncertainty, what opens up, liminality, and um, possibility. So I really appreciate just how huge really the canvas is that you, or the outlines of the canvas that you're suggesting I can fill in. So I think it is really important to place this conversation in the fact that so many of us will be listening to it are sheltering in place mm -hmm. and are having ex an intense experience of uncertainty and are having to improvise. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is comfortable with improvisation, and especially not everybody is comfortable with improvisation in the context of um, the, the degree of anxiety and stress that exactly. they feel themselves in their own bodies and they feel for the people that they uh, love, are connected to, and the people that they serve. 
So that feels like a huge context mm-hmm. um, for what's kind of uh, what we want this conversation to be about. Mm-hmm. And if if I were to kind of personalize the work that I've done with witnessing, I would say that um, I actually had a very a relatively early intense experience of uncertainty in that uh, in my 20s, my beloved mother uh, was diagnosed with a cancer and she was diagnosed mm-hmm. with a cancer in an era mm-hmm. in which uh, patients were not informed of their prognosis. It was actually against the law yes. in, in many medical uh, settings. And it was true of the hospital where she had um, had her surgery where the diagnosis was made. So she was informed of her diagnosis, um, but not her prognosis. Mm-hmm. But um, my father, my sister, and I were told that nobody with her diagnosis had ever lived more than one year. Wow. So we were um, com- compelled to be in a relationship with her where she thought she was cured, and we thought we were entering a period of uncertain life and we were prohibited from saying anything to her and in many ways the witnessing model which is the basis of much of the work that I'm going to be talking about really comes out of that experience where I was in an aware but devastatingly disempowered relationship and um, efforts to move into an aware and empowered relationship, which would have um, required me to be in right relation to my mother, to include her in the knowledge mm-hmm. that we had, um, was uh, forbidden. Wow. And um, I, my sister and I and my father worked very hard not to move into a state of denial or mm-hmm. unawareness. Mm-hmm. but rather to find ways that within the limits of what was uh, given to us, we could feel aware and empowered and, and, and relationally accountable mm-hmm. to um, our mother, who, as it happened, we all loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so the witnessing model itself is really born out of an intensely personal experience. Yeah. And uh, I was in my 20s. And then... Um, uh, our first child was born with a very rare genetic disorder. Um, and at that time, uh, it really nobody was conceptualizing that if you were the parent of a child who might die, mm-hmm. that for you, that would put you in a witness position and you might, in fact, experience trauma. Mm-hmm. The, the conceptualization was that only if you were a victim yourself, mm-hmm. not the parent witness, might you uh, experience trauma. Mm-hmm. And so also I tried to understand the experience that I was having, which I can assure you was <laughs> traumatizing, right. um, not knowing if your child is going to live or die. Um, uh, that also kind of ended up uh, informing the witnessing model. Wow. And then in the... Um, in the 1990s, mm-hmm. I began doing work in uh, post-conflict, post-war mm-hmm. settings in South Africa, Kosovo. And then that was another kind of lens through which um, 
I began uh, utilizing the witnessing model. So how did you, I'm so fascinated by everything that you're telling me, because there is a layer of witnessing. How, how did you come to call it this name, witnessing? I'm not sure if people had these um, way of seeing what was happening. So how, how did you come up with this um, concept? Well, first of all, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody's ever asked me that question, so thank you. Because that's something I'd really like to think about. Um, but I think it was probably pretty concrete that mm-hmm. uh, in the 1980s, there was a lot of conceptualization of trauma, and it would say victim-perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And I noted that um, uh, at that point uh, in my career, I was working at um, Children's Hospital, Judge Baker um, Guidance Center in Boston, now it's Children's Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was the clinical director of the sexual abuse team. And far and away, the, the vast number of cases um, or clinical situations we were working with were with um, non-offending mothers mm-hmm. who um, had been, let's use the word, witnesses to mm-hmm. uh, somebody, um, often a, a, a partner or, well, let's just say a partner male who was the perpetrator uh, victimizing and sexually abusing a child. So mm-hmm. the construct of witness outside of the legal context was very vivid for me through the 1980s. Yes. And and then, you know, I've, I, I would say that I've spent most of my professional life using or grounding my theorizing or conceptualizing mm-hmm. through my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty clear I, I mean, I wasn't a perpetrator in, in the sense that we're talking about it now. Yeah. And I wasn't the victim, but I was a witness. I understood that viscerally. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, those combination, maybe the combination of the personal mm-hmm. uh, experience and then the clinical experience and the fact that I was working at um, Children's Hospital and I saw, we saw clinically many, many parents, for instance, we had families where there was a diabetic child who Mm -hmm. uh, was not adhering to protocols and parents seemed to me to be clearly um, very distressed by Mm -hmm. that and but they were in a witness position they weren't the diabetic child and you know they weren't the diabetes if you see the diabetes itself the illness in that Mm -hmm. instance is you know perpetrating harm yes it is um incredible to me that you just made um a comment that has to do with the ways that you experienced this witnessing um and you call it visceral experience that this is an experience that your body is paying attention to um in many ways because uh, at an early age in your 20 years um living with your family you experienced something that was so dramatic in in a context where um we weren't making sense of um, diagnosis and even cancer in a way that we're doing it now. Um, What I'm thinking about, Keita, is um, how were there any lessons, as you had so many experiences with witnessing, were there any lessons that were particularly important to you that you uh, learned from, from this model that you you brought to life were there any particular lessons that you can share with us in this moment 
Yeah, you know, um, actually, uh, your questions are really... I've been interviewed by a lot of people, and your questions are, are um, you know, they're taking me to places that are very moving to me, um, and I do feel very filled up right now because the, the experiences that are coming to mind are with colleagues, really people who become dear friends um, in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And what the experience was like the first time I presented the witness model in Cape Town. And one experience that I had was that somebody who had been Mandela's former jailer came up to me at the end of the, this keynote that I gave in South Africa and said, I've never really understood my experience of what, what it was like until you talk today. And that was, you, you can imagine, an extraordinarily meaningful to It me. is. And then also I had South African colleagues who would talk about, um, and this actually has been a, 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 a life lesson for me, a wonderful South African woman who's now teaching in, um, in New Zealand. Her name mm-hmm. is Elmarie Coates. And um, she described what it was like in her family as an Afrikaner and how different her parents' uh, positioning was in the context of apartheid than some of the other Afrikaner families with whom Mm -hmm. she grew up. And she said in her family, what they said was the kind of oppression that we as Afrikaners during the Boer War should never happen to anyone. And what happened to us makes us understand how important it is that never again applies to everyone. Yes. And, um, you know, I I have a vivid uh, visual of where we were when she described that she was actually picking a mango from one of her family's fruit trees. We were visiting the farm where she grew up. She no mm. longer lived there. Um, and in a way, I would say whenever I eat a mango, I think of Elmarie and I think of how brave her, her work in the world has been, mm-hmm. how courageous yeah. and how important legacies can be. I mean, in many, in many, many, many of us have had to transform family legacies. Yes. And that's a wonderful work, too. Mm-hmm. Elmarie was saying I was somebody who was able to go forward with my family's legacy. Yes. And um, what you're speaking about is taking me back to my own experiences of witnessing at an early age. And uh, it's just making me think about what it takes to do the work that we do um, to meet with families during such a, a place of um, uncertainty. I, you took me back to a place, Kata, where I witnessed death for the first time. And uh, I was working as a, a hospital psychologist in Brazil because they have those. They don't have social workers. They have a psychologist that visit with each patient. And I made this friendship kind of relationship with this old man that was dying from cancer. 
And uh, just witnessing death with his family really shaped the ways that I decided to be with people from then on. So I'm interested to know if any of the lessons that you've learned in particular really, um, can you share with us a little bit? Is there something that you like to share with us about uh, the shaping that takes place when you see people talking about their lives and uh, even the contributions that they have in our own lives? Absolutely. And immediately what comes to mind is the work of Pilar Hernandez-Wolf and her colleagues on vicarious resilience. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a, uh, I, I, I don't do much clinical work now. I do mostly community-based um, work and, and work with larger groups. Um, but I have always had and retained a, a, a clinical kind of subsection of my practice of work working with families who had a child who was likely to die or had died. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I felt that that had been a, let's say, a muscle that had been exercised in my own life. And because I was spared, I now have a 41-year-old, you know, daughter who's alive and mm -hmm. unfortunately has very serious medical issues continuing, but um, she's a social epidemiologist. And, wow. Um, but because of the gratitude that I felt, but also the, the uh, experience that I had, it was important to me to um, stand by mm -hmm. families who often feel very isolated because their situations are... Mm -hmm. uh, different and very difficult and challenging for many people. So to your question, I feel that those families in particular, and also the families that I've worked with, where there's a member with a significant health issue, as I have myself, mm -hmm. um, those are families in which not only is there great resonance, because uh, we understand that we have had similar experiences, but I, I believe that they're able to draft on my resilience so that they become vicariously resilient. Wow. Absolutely. I feel like I have been able to um, take on qualities of resilience through knowing them and um, that there's a, a, a manifestation of vicarious resilience, which I think is a critically important mm -hmm. uh, concept uh, for family therapists to understand, especially at a time like this, mm -hmm. when there really isn't anybody in the world who isn't stressed and um, anxious and mm -hmm. upset. I mean, it doesn't exist, you know, the, mm -hmm. and, and the situation that we're in is actually historically unique. Mm -hmm. There hasn't ever uh, ben, even the pandemic of 1918 did not hit every single corner of the globe, mm -hmm. which apparently this pandemic is. Um, but one of the things that we can do is understand that there's no way any one of us is going to sustain resilience every minute of every day. But there is somebody somewhere who is in, in their resilient zone. And we can support each other mm -hmm. and help each other when one person is you know, out of too high, and I happen to be kind of uh, wired high out of my resilient zone, I can look to my colleagues and friends who are in their resilient zone and are encouraging me to use calming mm -hmm. uh, 
techniques that I have or, or resources that yeah. I uh, use. And would likewise, you, would you share with us just an insider on those skills that you have developed and people are encouraging you to use? That would be <laughs> that would be a good something oh, to know. No, I, I, I can I can say something to you. I didn't I didn't anticipate that this would come up. But okay. do you remember? Or I know you remember. <laughs> I, I I had listened to the podcast that you did with Peter. Yes. And there's this marvelous moment in it where you both realize that you're um, you're drummers and you you both play Brazilian music. So then I I, I Peter and I had an exchange. I think it might have been on the listserv. And he wrote back and he said, well, actually what happened afterwards is that I did drumming and then she did salsa dancing. Yes. I wrote you and I said, I don't know what I'm going to be able to offer you comparable. Oh. And you wrote back and you said community. And then, so that really stayed with me yesterday because that's when we had the exchange. And So last night I was having a lot of um, stress and I, I, I was getting ready pretty early to go to bed because I knew I was going to wake up, you know, in mm. two hours, which is what's happening. And, um, but I was thinking about you oh. and I put on a piece of music that came from the Toronto Symphony yeah. and uh, it's called Appalachian Spring. And these young, uh, they are all, as it happens, pretty young, you know, maybe in their thirties, but young. Um, there's a new program that allows musicians to be in their home space and play their part of a piece, and then the program puts it together. And it's visually arresting, and as well as it's just this incredible music. Wow. So anyway, it hap it's the, the, the piece that I was listening to was Appalachian Spring. And then I thought of you, and I thought of your dancing, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm a dancer. So I got out of bed, I'm in my nightgown, and I started dancing to Appalachian Spring, and it grounded me in uh, myself in a way that really I had not felt in hours. Wow. And then I called my husband in, and he said, oh, you should go down to the kitchen, we'll move the table away, and you'll have more space, because I have this tiny little, my bedroom really is a bed, yes. a little tiny, narrow corridor. So I went downstairs, And we did it again. And so I ended up dancing for about 15 minutes. And the whole time I felt so grateful to you because I don't think it would have happened. I know it wouldn't have happened unless you had said to me, community. And I've been thinking of you as a dancer. Oh, Kata, thank you so much. That really warms my heart. And uh, it really... Um It is so amazing because I know that a lot of people are scared and they're reflecting and there is a lot of waiting. But for me, since this whole thing happened, of course, I have moments where I'm freaking out. Uh, but I've been able to just meet people that are really um, amazing people like you, people like Peter, and just having these conversations that I'm sure they wouldn't be happening So it's a moment for me of being grateful for every minute of my day. 
And uh, you're reminding me of the things that I'm doing here. So uh, uh, sometimes I say, okay, I have my salsa shoes and I like them. So let me see what I'm doing because I'm quarantining by myself, but I have my dog. So I put the video on and I put a music on and then I'm dancing cha-cha in front of my dog. And, <laughs> and then he's looking at me like, what is you doing? But I'm dancing to him and it feels like my body is responding in a way that, yeah, Yes, I'm here. And uh, to bring that concept, I'm witnessing everything that's happening in the world, but I'm here and it's a minute to be grateful. Yes. And I felt that. And I felt for me, um, it was being grounded in a sense of my own body and at the exact same moment, feeling connected to you. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I didn't know you really. No. I mean, I know of, but that's different from, and yet feeling, oh my God, here's this person, you know, thousands, I think miles away. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I feel I've been blessed by you. You've given me something that is oh, this precious gift. Now I'm going to remember, mm -hmm. oh yes. When you're, when you're anxious, dance, You're a dancer. <laughs> Dance. How simple, huh? <laughs> so, you know, there are other things that I have on my resource list and other people do as well. I mean, I, 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 I talk with friends. I, uh, I do walking meditation. I'm not a very good sitting meditation person. Um, I do listen to music. I, uh, I run the tap water so I can hear running water. I do a tiny little bit because we do have drought and it's not right. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So, uh, and, and I have other resources. I, I can look out the window and, and I can, I have, there's a, 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 a form of pine that is kind of uniquely shaped and I just love looking at it. And, mm -hmm. um, You know, I can look at one flower, and frankly, I can uh, try to FaceTime with one of my grandchildren, and that will also be very Thanks better. Uh, wonderful for wow. me. Wow. As you're speaking, it's uh, taking me to this place of, um, I read this article that you shared with me, and it was an interview that you did. You talked about your experience uh, receiving medical treatment and how each time that you would go in you would dedicate that time to someone. And as you're speaking about community, I think this community building has been uh, with you all along. Um, specifically, there is a letter that you wrote to someone who was at war that really touched my heart. Would you uh, mind to share it with uh, our listeners a little bit about this story? Again, it's going to make me cry. That's Anthony Shadid. Um, I think that's the the what you mean. Yes. So I've had cancer three times. Um, the third, um, episode of cancer happened, uh, or I should say I was diagnosed on the day that my book tour for, uh, the book common shock everyday witnessing of violence was supposed to, um, begin. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a nine or I can't really remember if it was nine or 10 or 11, but I had a some number city, um, tour and I, of course it had to be canceled. Um, and I was also, I, I had quite a number of surgeries and I had radiation. Radiation is also very difficult for me. I'd had it before, but I'm 
um, fair skinned. And so I burn. Um, and, um, anyway, through a, a, a number of events, um, well, actually I should probably name what the event was. It was mm -hmm. December 1st, which is world AIDS day. And I was sitting in an audience and I was hearing about the, uh, impact on a young South African physician of, uh, having heard, uh, Robert Kennedy's address uh, that he made during the apartheid era. It was very brave. He had been forbidden by the uh, U.S. State Department uh, to travel uh, to South Africa, and he did, and he gave this incredible uh, speech, which I would highly recommend to um, everybody, anybody mm -hmm. to listen to. So I was listening to a portion of it. I'd heard that speech many times before because it's very moving and very important. Um, and it suddenly occurred to me, I, I was going to be leaving the Grand Rounds early, mm -hmm. and um, I was going to have radiation, and I um, don't like radiation. It's very painful. Yeah. And at the same time, I understood that I should be, and in fact, deeply was, grateful for the fact that I could have life-saving treatment. Mm -hmm. And then it occurred to me that my colleagues in South Africa Many of them and many of the people that I've met there have no access to life-giving treatment. And in fact, it was an incredible privilege that I was going to go and have radiation. So I left a little bit early and I went home and I took a photograph of this uh, one of my colleague's adopted daughter. Her name is Lorado, who herself, uh, the child, um, had... Uh, full-blown AIDS okay. and I took that photograph and I went to my radiation and I I put the photograph on my belly and um, I then wrote uh, my South African colleagues and explained that I was dedicating my treatment to this little girl and to them for the work that they were doing with the AIDS pandemic subsequently I decided well every day I'm going to dedicate my treatment to a person or people or a um, institution, a group that was doing work in the world that um, I wanted to support. So mm -hmm. I, I, I dedicated to Nelson Mandela, I dedicated to the um, group in, in London that works with uh, survivors of torture. And then I said, oh, I can actually double this. And I can ask people I care about who I could dedicate the treatment on their behalf. So I asked my son, who was a journalist mm -hmm. at that time, and I said to him, um, I'm, I would like to dedicate my treatment to somebody in your honor. Who would you like me to dedicate my treatment to? And he said, I would like you to dedicate your treatment to Anthony Shadid, who is covering the Iraq war mm -hmm for, I think it was the New York Times at that mm -hmm. point, he, he, he covered uh, the war for a number of papers, but I think it was the Times. So I did dedicate, and I wrote Anthony Shadid uh, a letter um, saying that I was dedicating the treatment to him on behalf of my son and sort of talking about his coverage of the war and how meaningful it was. And he wrote back and mm -hmm. said, I got your email when I was in a trench and feeling completely hopeless about why am I here? Why am I doing this? And knowing that 
my coverage was meaningful to your son and to you and that you've dedicated your treatment to me has made a difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is a form of witnessing in everyday life. You know, there's the witnessing of violence and violation that causes us pain and is unintentional and we don't choose. Mm -hmm. But there's another form of witnessing of which the treatment dedication Mm -hmm. project is an example where it's intentional, compassionate witnessing Mm -hmm. for the purpose of inspiring hope and also uh, uh, creating community and saying hope is something we do together. And that is really what the purpose of the treatment dedication project is. It's now been disseminated, you know, in many parts of the world. I'm not the only person who, who, who does it. Yeah. Um, but thank you for letting me tell that story. And also remembering Anthony Shadid um, did die oh. um, um, uh, tragically uh, as a war correspondent. Wow. Um, and uh, just to make another further note, um, his his daughter um, has taken up his human rights work in the world and is, um, you know, very allied with her father's mission. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's so powerful. It's such a powerful story. And uh, I really feel I, I can stand here in front of this computer where we're not really connected, but we're connecting in some level. And it just makes me uh, think about all the possibilities that are happening despite everything that it's unsure. Um, I work with the homeless population, Kata, and uh, sometimes what you're telling me, it makes me um, wonder about the ways that we're invited to be with people. Um, some schools of therapy, just bringing back to therapy, um, they, they request from the therapist, from the person who is the helper, to be separated and divided. And you said something about building hope and community together. So... Um, Many, many times when I'm um, interviewing people and doing research, I get home and I feel like my heart is just like so much in pain. And then sometimes I seek to speak about those uh, reactions. And then people sometimes tell me, well, you should separate yourself. And I say I can because um, I feel that each moment that I am with someone, I'm truly staying in solidarity And I think that can be more powerful even than any intervention that a therapist can do in front of a person. Um, And I know you're nodding, but I I, I, I guess I'm just going to say, but it's true. Um, Everything that you're speaking to me about has to do with this particular um, way that we are with each other. Right. And, and, you know, I would say that... um the way people stay in, 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 well, let me, let me put it this way. And, and, and I think Vicki Reynolds, who was our keynote speaker at the conference uh, last uh, summer, I, I think she's somebody who's written about this. Compassion doesn't fatigue. <laughs> right. There is no compassion fatigue. It's possible that we can be tired or there are circumstances that uh, create uh, burnout, but Compassion doesn't fatigue. Compassion makes our heart grow. Compassion makes love grow. Compassion 
it creates opportunity for community. Mm-hmm. And I would say, if I if I might make a transition to the witness to witness, yes, program, please, would that be um, okay to do? Yes, you know? please. So, um, I would say the heart of the matter of the witness to witness program is that we have we well we have thirty eight wonderful AFTA members who are volunteers. They have partnerships with attorneys, counselors, healthcare workers, most of whom are in community um, health centers. And so in the context of the pandemic, mm-hmm. these are the people, about 70% of them are women and about 70% of them are being furloughed, are going to be without a job in the next 37 to 40 days oh because money is running out. Yes. Um, they are, I might've said, they're pro bono attorneys, they're journalists. Mm-hmm. And the connections that people are making, it is not therapy. What we are saying that we do is that we do deep listening mm-hmm. and we encourage people to identify resources they've used in the past to see what the barriers are, the blocks to using those mm-hmm. resources now. And we are very present and very there for people. And mm-hmm. the feedback to the conversations, the feedback to W2W's peer support groups that we're doing where the co-facilitators, Karen Skerritt, Jennifer Slack, and myself are, has been overwhelmingly positive where people feel supported. They feel cared about. In the context of the pandemic, I wrote and asked every one of the volunteers to reach out to a former partner and say, I'm thinking of you. Mm -hmm. We care about you. And Again, the response has been very, very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two other components of the uh, W2W Witness to Witness program, one of which is webinars, mm-hmm. where we tailor the webinars to the particular group. At, at this moment in time, there have been over a 1,000 people who've seen one or another of the webinars. Mm-hmm. And there are distinctions in the, in the webinar that we do. We, W2W is is immensely concerned about moral injury that Mm -hmm. is being experienced by people who are working with vulnerable populations under the current administration policies Mm -hmm. where people are unable to provide the services they know their clients, their patients, their community members deserve and need and they policies are making it impossible. So we talk with our partners in the webinars also about how, yes, this is distressing, this is a moral injury. It is an extremely difficult situation not to be able to offer what you know somebody needs. And frankly, the COVID-19 situation is exacerbating that. And I'm sure we, you know, we've all read and I don't you know, wanna mm-hmm. frighten us, but um, hospitals are at this point unable, well, I should say hospitals in, in, in geographic locations that are in the surge are unable to distribute care to everybody who needs it, which means yeah. that healthcare providers are having to do something they really never had to do under uh, any circumstance, which is to say to somebody or their loved one, I cannot care for you. I do not have the resources. Yeah. And of course, they themselves are not resourced. We're getting lots of or having many conversations with healthcare workers who've never been in a situation like this, and it's devastating. Mm-hmm. And W2W is there for them. 
We're producing webinars that are being co-facilitated with um, our current fiscal sponsor, Migrant Clinicians yes. Network, that are specifically geared to different groups. So we have one webinar that Saul Durso, mm -hmm. who is an I know her. Oh, good. <laughs> well, Saul is going to be a co-facilitator of one of uh, our webinars that's co-facilitated with uh, Alma Galvin from MCN mm -hmm. that's specifically geared to community health workers. We have another one that I will be co-facilitating with two physicians mm -hmm. from MCN that's geared specifically to people working in hospitals mm -hmm. where, again, we're talking, it's very practical. We're trying to help people manage their distress, whether mm -hmm. the distress is from uh, their own lives, yeah. the clinical situation they're facing, the economic yeah. insecurity. Um, Kata, for people who want to um, participate in those uh, trainings or even join and volunteer the W2W program, where do they go? How can they connect with you? They, they at this point, they what they do is um, find witness to witness on migrant clinicians network website and uh it's under the about tab yes um you go to about and then the last on the drop down menu it says witness to witness and then there's tons of information about uh the program and at the uh it also is the case that on the AFTA website there is a link to migrant the the witness to witness uh, page. If you go under yes. it, I think it's called participation on the drop down menu on the after yes. page, it says witness to witness. Mm -hmm. And that takes you to a page that also links to migrant clinicians uh, network. I'll make sure so, to add those two links to the podcast so people who are interested in joining and volunteering, um, they can go ahead and find the information available. Okay. Yeah, I'm. We're. I'm not. I'm not positive. We we onboard in a very um, organized way, and I'm not exactly sure when the next onboarding of volunteers yeah. is going to be. But I'm sure it's going to be. Yes, <laughs> I know. We need. We need more hope. We need more hope, Kato. We need it, right? Well, <sighs> as I, you know, I I have a piece called Reasonable Hope, and I that is something that I really believe is a function of what people do together you know that it's not about anticipating a better future it's about making sense of what is happening now mm -hmm. I think you know one of the things that you said that was touched me in your anecdote about dancing in front of your dog you were saying I'm I'm all here I'm grounded and I am with what is happening now that was beautiful Oh, yes. Um, there is a lot of uh, wisdom happening in this moment of crisis. And I try to look at what can be learned every day. So as I wake up every day, every day I'm witnessing something and it has become more um, like visible because before I woke up, I got dressed to go to work. I did the same thing every day and then I got home and I was preparing myself to go to the next day. So how, how great it is for us to have a moment and think about the things that matter 
And uh, in the space of liminality that you're speaking about, and in the space that we haven't had much training because it requires a waiting, um, how are we using this time to make meaning and make sense of possibilities, but still um, honoring our presence here? You know, um, if I may go back, um, because one of the, the very first framing questions, you, you use the word liminality. And um, if I may say, because I'm somebody who has had and faced life-threatening illness and I, I have one lung, um, I've had half of my adult life I've been in one form of complicated treatment or another, um, I feel as though I learned very, very young to ask the question, what really matters, mm -hmm. which I think is what you're saying. And one of the life lessons I've had is that it's precisely because the future is uncertain that we can locate hope. And that's a, it, it, it might be counterintuitive for many people They might think that it's certainty that provides hope. But for me, it's uncertainty. It's the very fact that the future is not known, mm -hmm. that anything is still possible, that we can always find hope. And again, not rainbow hope, but reasonable hope that's grounded in our connectedness with how we can be inspired <laughs> by and connected to uh, other people. Mm -hmm. And certainly I'm feeling connected to you, connected to the ideas that you're sharing. And uh, I'm just in deep appreciation of you being able to share all these stories of hope and all these stories that really um, shaped life for you, stories that shaped um, the work that you're doing and trying to help people. If I may offer, so as I told you in the beginning that I woke up with this insight, and it doesn't happen many times, but I went to the computer and then I tried to find a quote on uh, liminality. And Richard Rohr, um, he said this, um, liminal space is the space of waiting. It's a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be. It is when we have left the tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It is then you're finally out of the way. It is then when you are in between the old comfort zone and any possible new answer. That's beautiful. Yes. So I really appreciate and I want to thank you and um, hoping that in the future we can keep um, a relationship going. And it's so great to see you smiling and uh, I'm, I'm really uh, appreciative of our conversation. I am too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kata. So I'm going to...